Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Hi everybody, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now this episode, episode 85, is our best of of 2020. We've chatted to a whole pile of people in motorsport this year and we've included on this episode a few of the cracking stories from our guests this year. We've put in two a few of the great responses to the questions that you sent in for our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer question segment and the pick of our Motor Focus Top 10 Shootouts. Now, Jason Bargwana won Bathurst back in 2020 years ago, and he was my first sit-down chat at the beginning of the year at the workshop at Gary Rogers Motorsport, ahead of what was planned to be his debut season in TCR Australia. Of course, that series didn't happen due to COVID-19 in 2020, but when we sat down, we chatted about his first ever Bathurst 1000 start way back in 1990 in a privateer Commodore. One of the things you and I have discussed in our travels over the years, we've been lucky enough, we've worked in television commentary and TV stuff over the years, um, the Toyota 86 racing series and the like, so we tend to tell little stories at dinners and things and that along the way, but I love the story of your Bathurst debut. Careful. No, 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 only the good stories, the <laughs> bad stories some don't... Some stories we might not yeah, talk they, about. Yeah, they don't no. make a run, don't worry, I've checked it with the lawyers. Um, the 1990 Bathurst race is where you made... The Callahan's, yeah. Yeah, correct, in the old VL carburetted yellow car with... Brian Callahan Jr. and John Gerwald, but there was a, a story behind how that all came to be, oh, and absolutely. you were sort of a bit of an, you got it added in and a bit of a ring in, and you ended up with a drive, and how did, how did that all be? So during, during 1990, uh, I raced a little Suzuki Swift. I mentioned Paul Smith earlier. I, it was a production car. Um, we did the Amaru, um, you know, that series they used to, I thought they called it the Ams car series. It was, it was back in the day. Yeah, yep. um, so yeah, we, we were always there, and we were always pitted next to the Callahans. I don't know why it turned out that way. But back in those days, we all had you know um, sheds out the back sort of thing, and with the one we were allocated tend to be always next to the Callahan. So we built a good relationship with them. I entered the the, the Alan Grice's search for champion. That was going to be thing, my next right? topic. So they're kind of linked, aren't they? Somewhere in there, I'd, I'd scrape some uh, twenty cents together and got my thousand bucks up and paid the money, and I managed to make the way all the way through the final. And for those who don't know, it was Peter Jackson's search for a champion. So it was kind of a, you pay your money to enter, and at the end of it, the best two get a drive in the Bathurst 1000 Correct. in Commodore yep, that year, right. which Alan Grice was involved with quite heavily and a few other drivers. It's a bit and, like, the, well, some people may know the Aussie driver search type thing. So it's a yeah. very similar process to that. It was a talent search thing. Um, some of the names involved with that were big. You know, you had Pete Gagan was mm. one, of the, one of the coaches. Um, yeah, Alan Grice was obviously involved in it. Um, you know, and I met some good people through that. And I managed to get through to the final. So, um, you know, you did your day at Eastern Creek. And back then, that was an interesting story, that the first day we did driving these uh, VN Commodores around Eastern Creek. Which were like proddy cars. Proddy cars, memory, right. Yeah. So yeah. they were pretty much standard road cars with a few <laughs> stickers on them. I remember, um, you, you, I think you got 10 laps each or whatever, you know, but they set up a bit of a chicane at the end of the front straight because they didn't want people driving through there flat out. If I remember rightly, between Term 1 and 2, and this is before it was actually a racetrack. Yeah, they'd never raced on it by that stage. It was dirt. Yeah. So you actually (laughs) went between 1 and 2, and it was like there was was probably a 30-metre section of dirt. So you just travel across the rat, and then we just kept going, because that's how early it was back when we used that track. Um, 
So I got through that day, and then we went to Winton and had another day, another day, and then you managed to find my way to the final. So in the final, there was uh, Rick Bates. Peter Gazzard. Peter Gazzard. Yourself and Brett Yulden. Brett Yulden. So on that day. We have um, a photo in the files in the office. Somewhere? (laughs) We will wheel it out when we put a social post up about this podcast for sure. Oh, look, it was it was um, it was a good day. I mean, the final was great. Rick was probably the quickest. I think I was second quickest. Brett was third, and then Peter Gazard. And through the process, uh, they and during that time, we'd spoken to the, the Callahans uh, a number of times. I was only eighteen years of age, you know. And and through that process, we got to the final. They picked um, Rick and, and Peter as the as the winners. A bit disappointed by that, but uh, Brian Senior rang the next day and said, "Look." Are you available to come to Bathurst? Because John Gerwald at the time had, if I remember right, it was some sort of medical issue and he hadn't cleared his medical for the license, so for his international license. So at that stage, we're getting very close to Bathurst. Um, they asked me to come and, and I had to drive the car at Iron Park one day. And then they said, look, just come to Bathurst. He, John had passed his medical at that stage. This is the week of Bathurst. So I'd already been, you know, I'm there with my helmet. I was racing the little Suzuki Swift there anyway. Um, I said, look, we'll just we'll just give you the minimum laps in practice, um, just so that in case we have a drama, we've got someone during the race, and, and therefore you're able to drive. You've I, done able enough to laps, drive. so you qualify. You. You've yeah. done the minimum laps. You've so if if we need you, we can we can sit in the car. So I did my ten laps, and yeah, this is this is an eighteen year old kid, right? So, and, and nowadays eighteen year olds what we see a bit of, but back in the early nineties, it was unheard of. Mm. You know, like um, eighteen, and I remember the drivers' briefing. You could sit next to Brock and Grice and Johnson and the heroes of your sport. These are the blokes you idolise. And I'm in the driver's briefing in amongst them all going, what am I doing here? Brock went past me across the top of the hill and I thought, man, that's far. I thought I was going fast, but then it was like, yeah, okay, I've got a bit to go here. Um, uh, so I did my minimum laps in practice, qualified that part, and they went, oh, look, that was actually quite good. You, you know, I was a, a bit faster than Brian and, and John. Um, can you have a go at qualifying? So I went out I, had, I actually qualified the car. I think we, I did a 29 something, which I thought, you know, Back then was I think the 16s or 17s was the money, so we're still miles off the pace. But in that environment, it was a 60 car field and it had different classes. There was privateers. We we're actually going all right at one stage. Um, yeah, so we qualified the car. Um, Brian, I think Brian crashed it in qualifying as well. I think he and then they rebuilt the car overnight, and then they asked me to drive in the race. So I actually got the second stint in the race as well, and it went from. Can you come along as a spare driver to actually practice qualifying the car, <laughs> racing the it car? It stepped up. It stepped up. There's a photo somewhere of me, and the only way I could reach the pedals in that thing, I actually sat on a pillow, and I'm not kidding you. We, <laughs> we pulled a pillow out of the motel, and I actually sat in the – I shoved it into the seat. Bolton, oh, it's so safe, it wasn't funny. <laughs> this is a Group A car at Bathurst, and I'm sitting on an actual pillow to reach the pedals. No power steering, none of that sort of stuff. So we manhandled that around and as a young bloke, and at one stage you were running 14th. Outright. I mean, it was it was going really well, um, but it split, uh, got into a hole in oil cores. So by the time they bypassed that, got us back out. We finished the race. Uh, I got my stint, my very first Bathurst, eighteen year old, a bit uh, bit uh, eye opening, and uh, I think Gricey won that day in the in the VL. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and the search for champion car didn't for, finish. And the search for champion, I didn't Yours finish, did. and I did, and I made my <laughs> Bathurst debut and 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 got through it. But it was uh, pretty exciting. Ryan Storey had a very big year in 2020 with the Shell V-Power Racing Team taking its third straight Supercars Drivers' Championship crown with Scott McLaughlin. Of course, McLaughlin is off to IndyCar Racing for 2021. So too is Roger Penske in terms of being out of supercars. In 2021, it is Ryan and Dick Johnson, 50-50 partners 
in DJR. Now, this podcast was actually recorded back in 2019, but it took us until 2020 for it to be released. It's a snippet about a much longer part of the story of DJR's darkest days at the end of 2012 and how the team managed to survive and live through 2013. As 2012 progressed, obviously it was a terrible year for the team. Things were falling apart. Um, there was all sorts of talk of potential partners and all of this, and and obviously they never sort of came to fruition. And it got to the Gold Coast event at the end of 2012. I'd been travelling to all the events. I'd been based out of Melbourne. I'd relocated to to the Gold Coast. I was living in a hotel here at the Gold Coast. I lived in a hotel here on the Gold Coast for maybe nine months before I decided I'm actually living here now, <laughs> which was which I, I actually I lost a couple of, a couple of house plants through that uh, through that <laughs> commuting period <laughs> in leaving Melbourne. I was often away a lot longer than was anticipated, and still was running business in Melbourne, had clients in Melbourne, and Adelaide, Sydney, trying to run all that, do all that. So I started delegating and offloading some of my other tasks and responsibilities and stepping back from some of the political responsibilities as well to be more involved in the race team and but then come 20 uh come the uh, gold coast race i effectively handed the person who was running the team my hard card my 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 ticket my credential and just said i can't i can't be a party of this anymore i can't watch it's like watching a train wreck i just i'm and he and i had pers- had a personality clash anyway he saw me as a threat which was completely uh completely the wrong way to take my contribution as it was then and at that point in time i just put i started putting money into the team as well significant amounts of money into the team as well so as, I as a sponsor as an investor as a part is that no i was i was paying for things um i was pa- i was yeah some sponsorship but i was paying for things for the team and and by now you and dick are quite close friends yeah, you're spending yeah. i was you know, quite quite close with with the johnson family um, I wasn't quite close with Steve Brayback at that point in time, but uh, I became quite close with him come 2013. But I just went from a period from um, the Gold Coast race at the end of 2012 through to the end of 2012 of being out of the team, having communication with a lot of the staff, having developed friendships with a lot of the staff, and obviously a, a great friendship with the Johnson family and uh, and understanding what was going on and getting bits and pieces and it's a bit like trying to put together a puzzle when you've got um, pieces from from three different puzzle sets, <laughs> but uh, but yours was from the box in the middle type thing. So I was piecing a lot of different things together, and some of the things I was I was hearing weren't quite credible, um, which was part of the reason why I stepped back in the first place. And I was hopeful, I was hopeful that it was all going to turn out the way that everyone was saying that it would, and that there was going to be these new partners and it was going to be a successful two-car operation and they were heading in the right direction i was happy to sort of step back from it but there came a point at the end of 2011 where i just thought there's a fraction too much fiction here this is not this is actually not playing out the way that anyone's saying it's going to play out and there are a lot of people who are going to get burned and that was when i started talking to dick a bit more openly about what i thought of the situation and that led to talks in early 2013. And should we paint a little bit of the picture here of 12 in terms of, and I'm happy to add the editorial to it, but four cars were run out of the workshop, but you had a mixture of scenarios, of sponsorships. Dean Fiore is running his wreck from out of here under the Jim Beam banner. Um, there was a one of the existing wrecks that had been the teams that had been as part of the 
disintegration between Dick and Charlie Schwerkel that was Charlie's yes. that was being leased back here. Paul Morris had a wreck running here out of a car and Stephen Johnson was obviously driving the, the, the team's number 17 car. So there's a, all sorts of pieces of puzzle yeah, so in, going in, on to make up that matrix. In the lead-up to the end of 2012, the plan was there would be it would be a two-car team with a single sponsor across both cars, Stephen Johnson driving car 17 in the DJR wreck and then the Paul Morris wreck driven by Steve Owen. I'm not sure what the number was going to be at the it time. It had been 49 previously. So I assume, so, I assume yeah. it would have remained 49. So that was, that was what was spoken about. That was what all of the proposals were, were put about. And I think... I think the people running the team at the time had all the will in the world for it to be successful, but they were trying to solve problems that they didn't have the capacity to solve and had basically... I don't want to be overly disparaging because I can see how you can fall for the hunt, for that bear trap of thinking that everything's going to be okay and that all of these other all these other things are all going to come together and it will work out and she'll believing be right on the night. She'll be yeah, right. She'll, she'll be, be right on the night and it will all work out. And I'm, and that's that's probably that's probably the, the the politest way of expressing where things were at the time. And are we talking? There's just not enough money here to do the things that we're talking about doing. So. Come the beginning of 2013, I went to Dick and Jill's house with Stevie J as well. And I'd had many conversations before then. And with what I'd seen, I'd seen aspects of the books. I knew that there were only two sponsorship agreements signed for that year and they were minor sponsors. And some of them were carryover agreements. I knew we were in a lot of trouble. And I basically called this meeting. I just said, look, Dick, from everything I've seen, there's no getting out of it this time. It's time to shut the place down. And you told him to shut it. Yeah. I said, you need to change the locks on the gate. You need to do it within the next few days. And this is the very end of 12? This is at the beginning of 13. Start of 13. This is before the staff had even, uh, even come back from work. And this is coming into a new era of cars, car of the future, brand new car. Everything that was in the workshop the year before from the terms of those cars, different cars. You had to build cars, get cars. So that's also going on in the background here, but not even a factor considering the bigger ticket stuff. So there was on. a whole heap of things that went on. And one of the things that went on that's that's untold that still still... It, it, it's quite telling of, of what was occurring at the time. So when you have a business, you have an asset register and you have a balance sheet. And race teams typically will have the chassis number against the car that's on their balance sheet. And there were four cars in the building, five chassis, three of which were owned by DJR. At the end of 2012, there were two cars remaining and a chassis. And they weren't all the ones that were on the balance sheet. So that should give you an indication of where things were up to. So come the beginning of 2013, the business had debts of eight figures. That's big. There were liens on all of the assets. And there was no way out. There was no, no sane person could look at the books, look at the balance sheet and say, this is an entity that, that should exist as, an, as, an, as a going concern. Your call was wrap it up. There's just no way out. You just there's there's not no recovery. Not even the most positive no, person in the world. No, no. And Steve Brayback had been put in a terrible position where he was 
he was signing all these agreements and putting money into the team to pay for the new cars. And he was extremely ill at the time and was signing off on all this paperwork when he, when he was deathly ill. And it put him in a terrible situation too because he didn't, he didn't have the full picture of what was going on either. But it should have been shut down. What was the reaction from Dick and Jilly and Stephen when you said that? It didn't come as a surprise to Steve. I think it did to Jilly. But it was it was it was certainly the case of reality setting in for Dick. And it was quite a long conversation and I sort of played things out and I'm I'm always I'm always I like to think that I'm a ruthless pragmatist. <laughs> DJ will describe me as the pessimist to his optimist, and that's probably true too. I see the glass as half empty, he sees it as half full, and that's why we balance each other out pretty well. But yeah, there was there was no there was no way of coming out of that quagmire as it was at the time. So I said to Dick and to Jill, I said, Look, what do, what do you want to do here? And he said to me, I don't know how to do anything else. And man, that 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 got me. It got me. I just thought, here's my hero. He's he's his health's no bloody good for one thing. He doesn't understand just how much shit he's in. And he's telling me he doesn't know what else he can do either. And you're it. Yeah. And do you sort of think at that stage I'm gonna have to do this. I cannot not do this and get involved deeper and roll my sleeves up because you'd step back at the end of 12 so in essence you, you don't have a position at this team you've helped and assisted the previous year or two yeah yeah but that meeting is the one that brings you onto the pathway that brings you to where we are sitting here now in but it, essence. Was, it was interesting uh it was interesting there was a presidential election in, in 2012 and that took place over the weekend, the, over the Abu Dhabi race weekend. So I missed the Abu Dhabi race weekend because I was in the United States for the presidential election. And I was almost at my rock bottom personally. I felt, I felt that. I felt that because I was on the outer with the team. Things weren't going especially well with some of my business and political endeavours outside of Australia in particular. And I think everyone's experienced in their life where sometimes you feel like you're swimming against the tide and you don't quite understand why no one else can see what you can see. And that was a position that I felt in. I went through a phase for a couple of months there at the end of 2012 where I wasn't, it wasn't, it was, there was a bit of black dog about it. Mm. So I said to Dick and Jill and to Steve, I said, look, if this, if you truly want to fight for this thing, I'll back you all the way. I'll put whatever resources I need to, to make it work. I'll do it full time. I'll run the thing full time. But you need to, you need to work with me. The day that we're not on the same page, the day that I ask you to do something and you don't do it, if I can't rationalise it, it's over. And that's, that's where we got to. They agreed to that. And from that moment on, I started putting together a plan to try and keep DJR racing. 
David Reynolds is never far away from making headlines, whether it's $25,000 fines at Bathurst, winning Bathurst, or everything in between. But when he sat down on the V8 Sleuth podcast with me in the office earlier in the year, he opened up on the aftermath of his crash in the Mount Boulder Sprint in 2007, where his navigator, Paul Flintoff, was tragically killed. In the full episode, Reynolds opens up about the impact that that tragic accident had on both his life and his career and the long recovery for both his physical and mental health in the years that followed. Now, in this snippet, he talks about his first drive of a race car after that crash and discusses some of the treatments he sought to address his mental health. And if any of the things talked about in the episode resonate with you and you want to reach out for some help or just talk to someone, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or head to lifeline.org.au or contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or head to beyondblue.org.au. What's the recovery, I, yeah. I guess, in terms of your – you didn't have any broken bones or anything no, like that. I it was had, just the, the head injury. I had, yeah, no broken bones, just like cuts and bruises and scratches and a, and a bruised brain. But when the initial thought was bleeding on the brain, which is severe. Um, so after the, after the first scans, it was all clear. And I remember lying in hospital – and I wasn't allowed to have many visitors at the time, so I wasn't allowed to have like an hour of visitors a day or something because they back then their knowledge of brain um, brain injuries was you know not a lot of stimulation, which is very very different today. They want you to stimulate your brain, right? Which is you know quite one eighty, one eighty to the, yeah, big yeah. time. Which probably actually would have helped me in my recovery because you know um, after I got out of hospital. I went home and I wasn't allowed to watch TV or do anything like that for it was a good month. So all I had was my own thoughts sitting home in Aubrey and all I had was these terrible thoughts of everything that happened. But in hospital I had to pass the memory test. Yeah. And it's a very simple memory test. Yeah. Very, very simple. Um they come and they come to your room and ask you, you know, like, uh, where who are you, where you're from, where do you live? Can you remember um they they well they first off they give you three words to remember like brick chair and red or black it's like very very simple mundane things and then they ask you a bunch of questions like where 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 are you um how old are you where do you live and then they say what were those three things i ask you and for the first two or three days i couldn't remember <laughs> just had no yeah, memory anything or the three things you had to remember well no i couldn't i remembered everything except except, the, those, except okay. those three yeah. things and so i think on the third day i was like oh, I hate being in a hospital. I have to get out of here. So I, every time they 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 asked me the three things I had to remember were like table, carpet, and green. Let's say it was that. And then they said, you know, what's your name? And I said, my name's David Reynolds. But in my head, I said, carpet, chair, carpet, table, green. <laughs> so I always finish the sentence with remembering in your head. Saying yeah. So that then after I could just the pass their shitty little test so I could go home. But right. I probably wasn't in the state to go home at the time. Good strategy to do yeah, it. Yeah, no, I like it. I just had to get out of hospital because it was doing my head in. Um, so yeah, then I was at home feeling super sorry for everything that happened about myself and all these bad thoughts and memories. And um, uh, the team rang me and said, "Would you like to come have a?" Have a go at a ride day, and I'm so oh, yeah. And which team is this? Uh, HSV dealer team. Okay, right. End yeah. of 2007, they're doing a ride day at Phillip Island in December, and um, I went and I got in the car. And this is your first time in any race car. First time since, in, the since the accident. So yep. what a month late? Yeah, it was a month and a bit maybe. Yep. And I um, went out of pit lane, like you know, feeling a 
feeling okay. Started my lap. Start, start like went down the straight, started my lap, went straight off. No. <laughs> straight off at turn one. I'm like, fuck. And then come back around, slowly come back around again, started my lap again, went straight off at turn one again. And then I just got it, drove into pit lane, got out of the car and said, I'm going home. <laughs> went I, off the I, track I just because you just had lost the feel? I don't know. I'm not sure my... It went too been, quick in the turn? Yeah, or? it was probably a tailwind at the time. I didn't oh, account for it. Probably did 8Ks an hour too much. Into <laughs> yeah, that something one. stupid like that. So I got out of the car and went home. And then that's when but, I started the Did you have to build yourself up to getting in the car that day yeah, and oh, getting back into yeah, the swing? a little bit, yeah. It's a very short turnaround time from... It's not like it's six months on from... No, that it's, it's not. It wasn't, it's wasn't very long. And that's probably why I just probably wasn't mentally equipped mm. to, to start racing again or start driving again. And that's, you know, I did the DVS... Um, that year, and I raced in in New Zealand with um, Craig Baird at at, uh, at the Carrera Cup in New Zealand the next year, and that's kind of what kind of got me back in into racing, and, mm. and here I am today. And in that um, recovery phase, uh, the physical is one thing, but the mental Mental's- and emotional is the other thing. So. Mm-hmm. What could you do or would you have done anything differently or do they just know more about it in 2020 than they did in 2007? They're better equipped to um, help what, you with those things or is it more about giving you the skills and the strategies and the yeah. the thinking well, to then work on it yourself? Yeah, I'd say like um, I think every journey is slightly different and mm. it's up to the individual person to find out what's what works best for them. Um, so I saw lot, lots of counsellors um, and that's just... That's just basic talking. What we're doing now—it's not really didn't really help much. It kind of helped a little bit, but not not a lot. And um, I tried in 2012. I tried getting hypnotized, and that actually really helped me. It's funnily enough, it's the weirdest experience, but it really helped me. They didn't make you cluck like a chicken or anything. No, like no, it wasn't like that. TV, it's just no. they they talk to your subconscious in a different way. To, and they, the person I went and saw, she was really good. She was amazing at her job. She made, she try and trains you to see gratitude in your life and and be be thankful for the things that you have rather than you know looking at all the bad sides. That's it's a bit happen. of a focus shift. Yeah, exactly. Rewire. Yeah, it was just a yeah. Okay, it's like a computer. Your brain's a computer, and it's just trying to reprogram it to think differently and better. Mm. And it really, really helped me. So yeah, that was a long, long turnaround for me. Anyway. Mm. Um, what else happened? I didn't like. Oh, I, obviously, when you get when you get airlifted to hospital, they send you the bill in the mail. Oh, it's so the this, last thing you think of. Yeah, right. So this bill came for about seven and a half grand. <laughs> I was Oof. like, "Fucking hell, that's expensive <laughs> chopper ride." It's yeah. but luck, like, but it's the chopper ride if you need it. Yeah, that needed it. Yeah, yeah. They pumped me so much full of morphine at the time. I thought I was going to die on the flight. <laughs> that wasn't fun. Um, but yeah, I think the TAC or some some insurance pays for that that bill. So yeah, it was a very very long recovery, and I had some very good people around me to help me through. And yeah, I'm very very thankful that I was able to to become a better you know better person out of it and and try and get over my fears and and everything that happened. Obviously, I still I still battle with them day in day out, but not as bad. You'll be hard-pressed to find anybody in Australian motorsport who says a bad word about Thomas Mesera. In the full podcast that I recorded over the phone earlier in the year with him, he told the amazing, staggering story of his defection from the old Czechoslovakia, spending time living on streets and in a refugee camp. Now, this snippet is about his early years in Australia, working three jobs 
in pursuit of his dream to race in Formula One. So you get to Australia in 79 in Sydney. Mm. What have you got with you when you get off that plane? Oh, nothing. The clothes on your back, pretty much. That's it. I, I, I didn't have a. I didn't even have a check-in luggage. I, I had a bloody travel document, which they gave me at uh, not passport, but travel document, which Australian embassy gave me in Vienna with a refugee visa. And uh, you know, luckily, I had relatives in Sydney. Then I, I didn't have to go through the camps in Sydney. You know, like I, I stayed with the with the relatives. Yeah. And did you? So, from a point of view of having relatives here, did you know you have relatives here? When yeah, you yeah, of Australia? course. So yeah, you went, yeah. Okay, so I know someone there. It's not like I'm completely alone yeah, in the whole yeah. country. Yeah. 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 And then the plan. So then the plan. Okay, we haven't forgotten the plan here. We're trying to get to Formula One. We're yeah, trying to yeah. go car racing. So we've got out of Czechoslovakia. Tick. We've made it through the yeah. refugee camp. Tick. We've got yeah. to Australia, the home of the soon-to-be Formula One world champion Alan Jones. That's a tick. Yeah. What's next? What's the next pathway in the next little part of the program of Thomas Mesera getting to car racing in Australia? Well, next next thing was to to make money to go racing. Then I yeah. Uh, one stage, I make three jobs. Like my best years when I should be racing, I still believe my, you know, the best years from racing, it's from 19 to 26, yeah? Mm-hmm. That's the best years for racing. Well, shit, you know, I, I didn't get organized to buy a first Formula One car until I was 20, 25, you know, or 24. Because, you know, you, know, you got to work, you got to save up the money. Then I, I work three jobs to save up money to go racing. What did you do? Buy a car. Well, eventually, I want to keep saving money to go to England, but then I sort of couldn't resist, and I said, "Well, I need to start bloody driving in here first. Yeah, you can't save up. No matter how much, how hard you work, you cannot save up the amount of money. You know, Mm -hmm. you you need to go and buy a drive in uh, in UK. Then uh, anyway, after I save up my first five grand, I'll. I uh, I bought a race car. I bought a Formula Ford, and uh, and I started in Formula Ford. What were those three yeah. three jobs that you're doing? I think you were a garbo, weren't you? As one yeah, of those yeah. Three? yeah. Early in the morning, early in the morning, I was on a garbage run, starting uh, four o'clock in the morning. By sort of ten o'clock, I was in a panel shop, and uh, I kept painting cars. And uh, then I was a bloody kitchen hand in a in a little restaurant at uh, King's Cross till about ten o'clock at night, in, uh, washing got... dishes. They didn't have dishwashers then. The, yeah. You were the dishwasher. You were... Yeah, I was in the dishwasher. Yeah. So you had yeah. a hold of this dream, and you were holding it so hard and going after it big time. Five thousand dollars gets you your first. Formula Ford race car in Australia. What was it? Where did you buy it from? Whose was it? What was the story with that car? Well, I bought Auto Action, and uh, and look in a in a classified at the back, and uh, they have Formula Fords for sale, and there's fifteen thousand, twelve thousand, and ten thousand, and they suddenly there's one for five thousand, and I thought, Jesus, you know, that's a good bloody deal. Then, uh, and I I knew nothing about it. Yeah, I, I never realized until after, you know, there are better cars and there are some worse cars. I said, well, they all got the same engine, you know, like they all same things. This one's quite cheap. I can afford it. I'll buy it. And I bought it. And uh, 
And then uh, after I bought it, then uh, first time I took the car to an engineering shop to do the, you know, wheel alignment done on it. And that was at Greenacre in Sydney. And that's where I met Wally Story. <laughs> and I couldn't speak English, mate. Like, it was very difficult. Like, at least now I can communicate, you know. But I, I couldn't speak English. It was very hard. But basically, Wally was saying, why the hell you buy this bloody thing, you know? And what sort of car was it? And it was uh, a Van Diemen? It called, no, oh, it's no, called no. Calbaro, which one bloke made it in his, in his garage back at home. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and Wally told me like you know every time he took it out something broke on it and it was running so far in the back like it's not very good car you bought here <laughs> and uh, and I thought well car is a car anyway then Wally showed me how to do the wheel alignment and few things on it and uh, and uh, you know I, I actually it worked for me because uh, everyone thought that car was a shit box. And uh, and I took it out. I remember I bought a trailer and come to bloody Surface Paradise Raceway. You wouldn't remember that. Yeah, no, I do. I do. Yeah, it's yeah? not there now. It's it's a, a housing development, isn't it? I think it's um. There's not even a hint of that track left, sadly. Yeah. Anyway, then I took it up here for my first run, and uh, and I put it on the front row, and then everyone thought, oh, "Jesus, well, you know, what's this guy like?" And this shit box was it doing on the front row, and uh, and I was so excited on the start, I bent the clutch, it didn't go anywhere. And uh, and this is what nineteen eighty three. That was in nineteen eighty two, I Two. think. Yeah, end of nineteen eighty two. Yeah, and then I kind of persevered with the car, and uh, in eighty three, and uh, and I, I kind of you know I, I was going all right until I crashed it or something broke down or you know spun off or something, but. Uh, Anyway, I, I was having a go. Yeah, I was having a go at it and, uh, and kind of got noticed a little bit in it. We'll get back to our chat in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in engineered bearings and power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, but did you know that you're probably relying on Timken products whenever you fly? Timken products have been used since the early days of experimental aircraft flights at the turn of the 20th century, right through to the huge superliners that take us around the world these days. In fact, when your next flight comes in to land, it's likely that its landing gear on the plane you're on contains Timken bearings. When a 500-tonne, yes, 500-tonne airplane, touches down on the runway, all of that load is transmitted to the ground through the landing wheels. And when those wheels touch the tarmac, they accelerate from zero to over 280 kilometers per hour in less than a second and experience temperature changes from sub-zero up at 30,000 feet to extremely high heat under braking on the runway. Each year, Timken's vast experience sees more than 12,000 product designs on more than 400,000 active planes, adding up to one billion safe landings and allowing three billion passengers to reach their destinations. We'll bring you more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to our chat. There was plenty of outcry late in 2020 from Supercars fans when some of the changes for the 2021 TV broadcast team started to come to light. 
One of those is Rihanna Crean, wife of two-time Bathurst winner Will Davison, and she joined me on the podcast late in the season to talk about her departure from her Supercars media role. Now, this pod was our best-rating podcast of 2020, and in this snippet, she talks about the reaction to her news and reflects on what was a very emotional year. Probably the standout question that came from a lot of people, and a lot of people hypothesised about this without asking a question, which people tend to do on socials. Did you jump? Were you pushed? How did you find out? Give us, give us the, give us the take on on what unfolded, so you can spell out any of the, the the crappy things that are out there, or the things that are incorrect, or that are half right. From your point of view, how did it all go down? No, I was. Um, I my contract had ended at the end of this year, like like pretty much. Uh, with I don't think I'm speaking out of school. I think most um, of the TV talent were getting out of contract at the at the end of this year because uh, the. The network was changing. Um, obviously, everyone knows we're moving to Channel Network 7 next year. Um, so I was always going to be out of contract um, regardless of whether I continued or didn't continue next year. Um, so it was just a case of not renewing my contract. Simple as that. It's a case of there's been a split sort of system in the last six years. There's been people under the Channel 10 umbrella, people under the Fox umbrella, people under the Supercars umbrella. Next year, that's kind of all all those people have been put under the one umbrella. So there's a bit of a natural, um, there's less spots, I guess, available as well. Did, did you have it explained to you? Has, has it been outlined to you why you're not part of that? Or was it just a case of, sorry, we don't have room for you. Thanks very much. They move on. Um, look, I think um, anytime there's a network change, they'll look to see change or, you know, you know, obviously all the different networks are going to have their own view on what they want to see uh, with commentary, with pit lane, all that sort of stuff. It happened when Channel 10 came in, uh, what, when was that, six years ago now? Um, mm. You know, they wanted to, to change the lineup. With, that's when we saw, you know, Rusty come into the team and, and, and Murph um, and, you know, Larko was out and then in and all that sort of stuff. So like any, any like anything, any sport, any television network that everyone's going to want to see you know, their own sort of different freshen up and fresh and fresh and fresh the faces um, that sort of thing so um, I didn't certainly didn't sit there thinking oh I'm a guaranteed startup next year um, whatsoever and likewise I don't think anyone in the talent pool thinks that they're a guaranteed startup anytime there's a network change so it's it's you know no, there's no conspiracy theories <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> this this is this is television no one's guaranteed to see that's true. That's true. I've always said that as well. Um, no one's got a God-given right to, to any role. And uh, if you do manage to, to be in one, it's great. But when it ends and someone else gets an opportunity, that's, that's just life. That's how it rolls. The big question now, what are you going to do next? Because there's no way in hell, and I will tell all our listeners, I know you and your husband very, very well for many, many years, you can't spend more hours in a day with Will Davison. It will drive you troppo. What are you going to do to fill in the hours? Will you still go to the races with him? Will you sort of come to some? Um, are you going to follow a bit more of the, the path of fitness and, and socials and the stuff you've been doing there? Do you want to try to find another TV berth in another sport? Do you want to do something else in supercars? There's a whole pile of potential here. Which one grabs your fancy or have you not really given it a, a bit of extra thought? Um much to yeah I don't really know I saw some comments on Facebook saying good luck with the birth um which I don't, I don't <laughs> Wait, know now what, there's a rumor we need to I don't know what that means maybe they've seen oh. photos of me after lunch or something but um, <laughs> no I am not having a baby 
Um, so let's just put that one to bed right here, right now. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything. Um, there's no, there's no announcements to be made right, right at this moment. I, um, as you know, this year for me has been really, really tough. Um, the toughest year of my life. And um, that's probably made me reevaluate the way I see things um, at getting emotional. Um, and I don't feel like I need to jump into something just yet. Um, hmm. I had a really hard year and I probably just need to take some time to get myself right before I, you know, <laughs> get myself yeah, oh, totally. into any. You've had. Yeah. <laughs> You've had more stuff crammed in a one year. You, what you've had crammed in a one year, some people would not have all that stuff in a lifetime or in 20 years. So, and, and it's been the, and I do, I actually recall a phone call with you at the start of the year where you said, well, I'm out of contract at the end of the year. Will's out of contract. This is before COVID. Will's <laughs> out of contract at the end of the year. Oh, who knows what could happen this year? Well, we're going to enjoy it. We're going to stay on a couple of extra days at some of the places we go for racing this year. I think this was January, February or something like that. None of us could have expected what changed with the world after that and then what flowed on from it and that your, your dad had so sadly passed away in the middle of it all and no one could guess. I mean, we've all deemed what is a bad year in our lives previously, but you had 20, 30 years of stuff crammed into 10 months, really. So I think the fact that you're going to stop and have a breath, you can have a big breath now because you've, you've had to go through a, a lot this year and I think it's all been... Um, it's been hard to have to sit down here in Melbourne and be stuck away from all you guys and, and see, uh, and see you as well. Uh, what has, um, and I am going to go back to Miss V8 supercar. We're going to go right back to the start here. Um, but, and I don't want to, you've talked enough a lot about what's happened this year. I think everyone who listens to our podcast knows, um, yeah. you know, Will lost his drive, all the things that happened, got to drive back ends up at DJR, you got parked out of tally, came back for a couple of rounds in the middle of it all. Your dad suddenly passed away. You had to rush to Perth. You just made it in time. I mean, just, and it started so well. I mean, January was uh, your wedding day. It was, you've had it all this year. It's been a roller coaster ride that um, I don't think anyone could ever match or top for highs and lows. But um, what have you learned about yourself this year? That's probably the, the biggest question that springs to mind? Um, that I'm pretty tough. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> tough. Um, that life is, is really short, really short. And, um, sorry, no. <laughs> so, I think it's been a reminder for everybody. <laughs> that, Just, uh, um, yeah, yeah. It's just, yeah, I think I'm tough. Like I was tougher than what I thought. And um, as much as I know lots of people have realised they've got to be grateful, um, but we just have to, shit doesn't matter. <laughs> just, <laughs> the shit doesn't matter because it just doesn't. So that's why I think when people say, what are you going to do? I just, I don't really care no. right now. <laughs> If I'm perfectly honest, because oh, yeah, it just I get it. things don't matter. So mm. I know that um, 
when people say that, you know, it's really hard, like I lost my job and it's devastating to me because I love my job and I love working and I'm such a determined person. But in any other year, I think um, it would be so different. But this year, um, there's been so many other things that have been so much more important that um, it's just different. Mm. So things that I've learned this year, um, yeah, it's just, yeah, you just have, I'm tough and it's just, it's just the small things that, that are, that are more important. 2020 put Scott McLaughlin in the record books of the Supercars Championship and Australian Touring Car Championship competition too, one of only a handful of drivers to win three straight Supercars Championship crowns. But before he got the job done at Bathurst in October, a few months earlier, I chatted to Scotty on the pod. We spoke mainly about the years leading up to his time at DJR Team Penske, and this snippet looks at his years aboard a Volvo with Gary Rogers Motorsport, including how his own fabrication work nearly cost the S60 its first championship race win. What's your your everlasting memory of that Volvo program and driving those cars in what was a cool little part of your career? Just the 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 environment, like the the team, you know, the hard work to do it. There was you know engines coming from Sweden. Um, the people that we met from Sweden were just awesome people, really, really, really good people. Um, and then you had you know Krusty and everyone working on the car and, and the aero map um, at. at at home and so that was that was really um an awesome era and then obviously when we had that amazing you know race at adelaide with jamie and stuff you know people still talk to me about that now and it was just such a cool era in my life and and something that i'll i'll never forget what did you drive that the prototype version with the chevy engine in it still yeah yeah i did yep so i did uh so i did some testing in 2013 um Oh, sorry. Yeah, and that was a, a, a Holden VE shell, and that was start of 2013. And then 2014, we had that shell as a Volvo, um, and I think, yeah, and that was the, a Chevy engine for a little bit, and we did all the aero testing at um, Winton, Phillip Island, and then we didn't run the engine. I can't remember when we did, but, geez, when the engine came out, that was so fast, that engine. Oh, it was it was an absolute stormer, absolute stormer. I, 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 t- I, I kid you not. The yeah. first test day we rolled out down at Eastern Creek, I was running at half throttle or three quarters throttle. So I, cause I was catching like Tanda and people in like HRT wagons and I didn't want to like, um, like show that we had a heap of stuff and, and make it, make it uh, obvious. So it was just, but then obviously supercars saw it and they turned us down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Did you, it's funny when I think of um, when the Merc came along, that was kind of the cue for Van Gisbergen to want to get out of Stone Brothers or mm. other things going on, but it, it worked out at the same time. When you heard of, you've just come off your first rookie year, you've won a couple of races in a, a package that's pretty well platformed because other people are running VF Commodores, did you embrace the whole Volvo thing and think, this is new and different and we'll be different from everyone, so if it goes good, we'll be really good? Or did you think, Oh, this could derail me for a little while here. Just take a while to get going. A bit of both. I, I actually signed a three-year deal straight after the, you know, basically just before he actually announced it, 
and um, I signed a three-year deal with Gary's. You know when you signed it? Well, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know that it was the Volvo thing. So he didn't tell me, but he was always pretty upfront. But then when it all happened, I was like, geez, I'm actually really excited by this. I think like we're going to be, like he said, we're going to be different to people. I'm young, like I'm 20 years old. I can really like just get the team around me and we can make a car that like is really like good and, and that's what we ended up doing, you know, and I was in a cool stage of my life where I, I was able to spend a lot of time with the team and, and do a heap of stuff with them on the, in the background and, and, um, you know, figure out this car. And thankfully we rolled it out pretty quick. It was just a bit of reliability that really hurt us at the time. Um, but that was, yeah, I really, uh, from my side, I really embraced it and it was the best thing I did. Going back a little while, uh, when the Perth round was supposed to be on this year, Fox were running, a pile of old Barbagallo rounds and that 2014 uh, Barbagallo round that you won Volvo's first race in the championship, I think 28 years uh, at the time. Uh, I'd forgotten, I must admit, that I commentated it. I completely yeah. forgot that I even did it. Yeah, I remember. Where was Matt White? He was he was somewhere, eh? He was uh, sick or something. I can't remember. Um, yeah. It wasn't the Royal Wedding because he did that a few years earlier when yep. the fireball happened with Carl Reimer. Yeah. I think, think Matty, ah, you know what it is? Maddie had left to go to 10. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. And Crompo was crooked that weekend with a really dodgy voice and he was struggling. So That's right, because Murph was doing some stuff too, wasn't he? Murph came yeah. yeah, we actually, on the Sunday, the race that Chaz won, I think we actually pulled Neil out of the commentary box 10 laps in because he lost about six cylinders in his voice and me and Murph jumped in with Scafey to... Jeez, I, lo- I love a good Crompo Grizzly voice. Yeah, they're some of the good good races. The 2014 Bathurst comes to mind too. But yeah, like that was that was a that was a cool weekend, Perth. We actually cracked a header in that race too. Um, that so we were lucky not to, or we're lucky just to continue to be as fast as we were. Um, and ironically, I did those headers, so it was my own fault. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> stupid. Well, did they let you do headers ever again after that? No, no, they did. They just taught me how to do it properly. (laughs) Not shortcut. Nick Perkett had a very big 2020 with two race wins in the Supercars Championship and a very solid finish in the overall points score at the end of the year. But I reckon the big takeaway for him this year was Nelson. His chocolate Labrador became famous, more famous than probably Nick was. In this snippet when he joined us on the podcast, we talked about how he's come across on TV in the past and how that skewed how he's been perceived by fans. Tell me about your evolution because we, we touched on it earlier. Obviously, we, we know the categories you've been through. We know the pathways you've gone through and the success that you've had. I get a I get an interesting take on all of the guys in supercars uh, and their growth is not just their, their resume and their on-track performance, but they're as people as well yeah i've got an impression that there's an uh, uh, and it's different when in the media and in the industry we know you better and 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 all the other drivers better than say the fans do because we spend more time with yep. you uh we have a, a we have the very privileged position of the greater insight i would get the impression that you've struggled a little bit over the years to find not a comfort in your own skin. I think you're quite comfortable in your own skin. So I'm interested in your take on all this. But uh, where you are placed in the grand rhythm of the world and the way that you react and, and deal with it, do you find that you're finding your feet a bit more in who you are as Nick Perkett versus uh, 
Nick Perkett, the racing driver, and that results in the, the racing driver. It's the maturity and it's the understanding of the way of the world and uh, a bit more of a, an acceptance of there's only so many things that you can control. It's almost like there's a um, – I reckon you attempt sometimes to – you are a funny guy. You've got a great sense of humour, but you almost try to use that as a mask on things when they're serious or, or awkward. What, what's your take? I know that's a lot to, to roll into one, but I was just really interested in probably more self-assessment than external assessment. Yeah. Well, I think definitely there was a period where I was nervous in front of camera. I actually watched, was watching that Formula Ford race that we, you shared the other day from Darwin and I saw the little interview after with um, Brian and I was just laughing. I'm like, wow, I can barely talk. Like, <laughs> I was nervous. Um, so it's, yeah, I think um, I definitely used to put the walls up. Well, I still probably do, but the walls would go up and the defense mechanism was not what, some people like to see. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because obviously I worked with a guy called Anthony Clarica who does pretty much just tunes up all their heads mentally. <laughs> and you know, the likes of Winkup, Will, Garth, Rick, um, Reynolds, heaps of us have worked with him. And I worked with him from 2007 until 2014. Um, and then I actually stopped during the LDM days and I realized that my defense mechanism way aggressive <laughs> or too blunt and like general public hate it um, and you know but I'm the way I am like the way my friends know me I'm very black or white it's yes or no um, so then I realised you know not having him in my corner and stuff like that wasn't working so I actually re got AK on board and I've been working again with him since 2017 the back end and even, you know, people on the race team at BJR, um, people at the racetrack, they're like, oh, you've changed a lot in the last few years. And I'm like, well, I don't tell them how, but it's, you know, I see a bloke to keep me calmer and deal with certain things in different ways. And, um, you know, it's, for example, back in 2011 when I, the car stood on the grid at Phillip Island when we are off the front row, um, instead of coming down the radio and rage or whatever it was, actually was so frustrated I bent the rear anti-roll bar adjuster and we still don't know how I could have done that because it was a machine bit of aluminium like <laughs> aluminium but there's so much adrenaline and stuff like that was my trigger I just I didn't even know I was doing it and it kept, I stayed calm but I, there was no camera in front of me <laughs> to give a stupid answer yeah. Um, so yeah I think I've definitely changed my approach or got more comfortable around the whole show um, and I think yeah, everyone matures at a different level and I guess everyone, yeah, like say for a lot of us there, like I look at my life and I'm like, I should literally be living in Adelaide, working at my dad's workshop. Could be a lot worse, man. Um, Could be a lot worse from where you are. Correct. Right like the fact I'm even doing this is fairly unbelievable. So then it makes sense to me why I would probably get a little bit nervous in certain situations. Um, because I'm just like, wow, how am I actually even here? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think I've definitely changed my the way I go about it, and just day to day life. To be honest, it's um, I'm a lot more relaxed, and I control what I can control. And um, if something goes wrong that wasn't me spearing into the side of someone or flying off the road, it's my response when I have a camera in front of me or anyone else is probably a lot different to what it used to be. So yeah, it just took me a little bit to get, I guess in the right frame of mind or understanding of that. And I think 
being dragged away from home quite young um, to live in Melbourne by yourself, driving for the factory racing team as a junior, you naturally, I think, get a, a sense of arrogance nearly. Mm. Um, and hanging out with, you know, the people I was hanging out with, they were winning championships and they were so serious. And, um, you know, Garth's quite a serious person. So I think um, I nearly kind of molded into this way, but, which I thought I had to be, but it was wrong. My personality didn't match it. Mm. Um, where, yeah, so I think it's just taken a little bit to find my feet. Um, and that's why I'm trying to do like a little bit more behind the scenes stuff with my social media. And um, that's why, you know, like I have, say, um, easy one. Timken is a, I'm an ambassador for Timken and they support this program. But the guys at Timken know me very personally and they just, they wish that everyone could know me like that, if that makes sense. <laughs> because yeah. you guys will get a lot different, Nick, to what had got portrayed for a few years there. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to show everyone that I'm not just an asshole. <laughs> just, I do, I am a normal human. Greg Rust is one of the nicest people I've ever met in Australian motorsport. Well, actually, scratch that. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met in Australia, let alone in Australian motorsport. And he was kind enough to pop in the office the week of the Australian Grand Prix earlier this year. You'll remember it. It was a week that, well, the world kind of changed a little bit, didn't it? He was the last person that we recorded a show in person with in March. It was Tuesday Grand Prix week and the onset of COVID-19. Now, we covered a wide range of topics with Rusty, but this snippet's about a topic close to both of our hearts, dogs. Specifically, Greg's dog, Buster, and the story of an infamous visit to Channel 10. There's a story, and I don't know the story, <laughs> but I've heard it's been referenced by some of our fans on socials, and yeah. and you've mentioned it before we came on air. What's the story about Buster the dog working with you at Channel 10? I, I have two dogs. Buster, who's a cross Springer Spaniel Border Collie, I love him, he's, he's nearly 10, and Indy the Weimarana, so she's a bit of a new addition, but this is about Buster. So Daz and I are doing MotoGP from the Channel 10 studio back in whatever year it was, and uh, Sarah and the kids were away. So so Beatty messages me and says, bring Buster in, mate, it's 4am, you know, we're doing Laguna Seca or something or other, and, and no one's here, mate, no one will, no one will know, I, I want to see Buster. Okay, so... I, I, you know, I, I cave into pressure. Yeah, I, I was going to say peer I, pressure wins. I, peer pressure. I'm thinking, well, there's no one in at Channel 10, so I bring Buster in. In we go. And I could get into – I knew I could get into the makeup from the car park relatively easily. I wasn't going to take him upstairs into sort of management areas or whatever. So in we go and Buster's, Buster's barking at Daryl and he's barking at Renee, the, 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 uh, the, the makeup girl. And Daryl is like – um, like Crocodile Dundee, mate, with the hand movements, you know. He's trying to calm Buster down and Buster, you know, like he, he fully fell under Daryl's spell. And I said, okay, okay, I'm going to go and put him back in the car now. I'll give him a, a bowl of water and he'll be okay while we're working and, and I'm not taking him into studio and okay, okay. So I take him back to the lift to go down to the car and he lays the biggest nugget ever near the doorway to the lift. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. So I'm like a cat on a hot tin roof. So I, I dive to the men's bathroom to go and get some paper to clean this up. And when I come back, Buster's gone. 
Buster's gone. I'm going, where the hell is my dog? Where the hell is my dog? So I'm going upstairs. I'm going downstairs. And I pushed I pushed the the lift and the lift returned and the doors opened and there's Buster on the inside. Like he'd just gone for some some ride somewhere. So, mate, I'm cleaning this up. Daryl is wailing. He offered me no help whatsoever. He's on (laughs) the ground crying. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so that would be on security vision somewhere, mate. (laughs) Work 10. Someone's had a good laugh at that, I would have thought. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, never brought the dog again? I, I, I never brought it up, and I took one of the kids in one day to to Channel Ten. They were only very young, and they proceeded to start telling my boss this story. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, like, no, 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 no. Do you, do you want to be left in the world, no. Georgie? You can come in here any time when you tell yeah, a story. Yeah, like what that. else have you got? Yeah. We want info. Our National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer question segment was one of our most popular with the fans in 2020, allowing them to ask questions of some of the biggest stars of the sport. Now, when I spoke to Greg Murphy, the four-time Bathurst winner, we had to address the deluge of questions that we received about his tangle with a certain Tasmanian at Bathurst in 2005. There's a lot. In fact, more questions about Bathurst 05 than... Um, any other topic when we threw it out there uh, a week or so ago. So what did you and Ambrose actually say to one another? Can you give us the uh, full version and we'll bleep anything that is too fruity that needs to be bleeped? Oh, God. Um, A lot of finger pointing. um, And it was along the lines of um, you, you what the you, you, what the f- f- you, uh, you know, go f- yourself. You, what the f- do you think you're doing? You're f- trying to kill me. Yeah, you f- why don't you just f- off over to America? I'll f- buy your f- ticket. You, um, <laughs> I don't know. The complete machine just blew up. <laughs> yeah. It was wild, absolutely wild. Far out. These, um, yeah. I tell you right now, if I'd uh, if I knew what was going to happen, um, I would have actually uh, yeah not been as pig-headed to try and um, uh, hold my line through that corner and that he bailed out of that one and let him have it. Right. Okay. So there's this is a the cooler, mellower, mature Murph saying. In hindsight, you would have done. Well, it. the thing is, the thing is, you know, we went as much as you, you were know, cool. Well, you, you had to pit again, didn't you? Oh no, no, no! Don't think so. No, I don't think so. But we were we were out of it. I mean, we were fourth and fifth, and yeah, yeah. and we weren't going to win. Neither of us. I don't. I doubt we we're going to get the podium. The guys ahead of us were where everyone was trucking along pretty good. It was pretty late. Was it lap one forty seven or something? Yeah, around that fifteen or so. Yeah. Ago. yeah. I don't remember that we were going to have to pit again. Um, I, had weird, I, I had a weird feeling that your car that because by that stage you'd swapped to the Perkins engines, and I think you were out of whack on the. Strategy. Oh, I'm, I might be wrong. My memory. Maybe. Might. I. I but honestly don't. I don't recall. It might have been the case, but um, you know, it was. It was a. It was just. A, it was a bit of a struggle of a day, and and, you know, I um, I didn't feel from from what I remember. I, you know, we were. I was pretty comfortable. Marcus, I don't think had anything um, special as speed goes on on me, um, but I got balked heavily by I think David Besner going into turn two and Griffiths, and and um, I sort of. Uh, yeah, he he sort of turned down on me when I was trying to pass him and and lost all my momentum and and that allowed Marcus to come up alongside um, on the run up to up to turn three, and it was just one of those pig-headed moments where you know um, 
he wasn't going to give in and I didn't give in and, and he had his nose ahead, but there was no pass completed. And so, you know, I, I've always been quite open the fact that I, I believe we both contributed to it and I always was happy to take 50% of the blame for it because it was a goddamn mess. Um, but, um, you know, it's one of those things and, and we'll agree to disagree, I'm sure, but, you know, it was just a, yeah, a shit sandwich that, um, yeah, sort of wished never had happened, obviously. Mm. And if he had, had my time again, I could bloody go and repeat it. You know, uh, knowing what, what, what has happened, you, you, you probably would bail out of it. When you say what has happened, do you mean... Oh, just afterwards. The fact that it, the, the cars were out of the race and you were out, or the fact yep. that it's gone on all for that. 10 years and we're still talking about it? Yeah, all that, and the fact we're still talking about it, because it was not like it was a... It's not like it was a great a great moment in my life, in my career, and not for him either. Um, but, um, you know, and it soured, obviously, you know, just added to fuel to probably um, a bit of the um, the fire that was already burning maybe between us anyway, I suppose. And I mean, I, I got a huge amount of respect for the guy. I mean, I think his ability behind the wheel of a racing car was proven and, and um, you know, won two championships and went off to America and did, did as far as I'm concerned, did great things over there. Um, you know, achieved a lot. So, you know, kudos to him for, for that. Um, you know, it was just, uh, it was messy up there that day. And, and it, you know, uh, I was just, as I say, there was a, there was already a bit of a, a festering scab um, between the two of us, I suppose. And, and that just, that just you know, made it a whole lot worse. And, and the other thing is a lot of other people got caught up in that. You know, that didn't deserve to be caught up in our shit or my shit or his shit or whatever. That um, you know, blocked the track and damage was done to other cars, all that kind of thing, and and um, yeah, I I don't want that to happen. Didn't want that to happen, and it was it was almost a little embarrassing. Michael Caruso joined me on the Sleuth Pod during the year as well, and he talked. <laughs> this was good about the time that GRM played a prank on him involving his road car. Luke Mack asks. How did you like your Mazda one two one in the full <laughs> two thousand and nine Bathurst wrap, and where did it in where did it end up? Um, that I, so that Bathurst livery you spoke about that yes. you and Lee got going with Gary, <laughs> they wrapped your Mazda one two one road car in that livery, did they not? They the team? did. So we did. Um, we ran the back half of that year with the livery still, and that's because we had the stickers left over, and Valvoline loved it, and it obviously had such um, you know every all the fans loved it. So that's Gary's like, yep, let's run it on. Uh, and then when we got to the end of that year, I think I came. I think I came back from Gold Coast from memory, and um, we had a full sticker set left over because the whole car was wrapped. So they wrapped my car, and um, so I've turned up the workshop at some ridiculous hour to go home, and here's my car looking exactly the same as my my, my Mazda one to one, looking like my actual race car. And I'm like, oh, what have you done, boys? Like. So I'm driving home like this wanker, like Caruso on the window, 34. Could have said know. Robbo. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so the car is uh, – I didn't re-register it and uh, some – I just rang the paper up and said, come pick it up and they gave me 100 bucks for it and they went and it's gone. It's still in delivery? No, no, no. no. You unwrapped I, it? I, well, <laughs> that's another story. So – I was like, I can't drive around like this. So I left the car at work. I used Gary's car for a while and because um, <laughs> I just couldn't drive around. It was terrible. <laughs> but um, I'm like, right, I better pull this livery off the car. So I started taking the livery off. It peeled all the paint off. 
the car was stuffed. Like the thing was finished. Like he, I was going to get a full respray on this Mazda one two one. What the hell Which would you would be do? worth more than Mazda one two one? So yeah, it, the thing was yeah. Anyhow, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the sacrifice. So oh. the Mazda one two one's no more. There's only ever been one Gold Logie winner that's appeared on the V8 Sleuth podcast, and he did it during 2020. Grant Denyer sat down on the phone with me to answer some of your questions. And now we love stitch-up questions too from people who know our guests. And this one's come from his dad, Craig. Our social media fans and followers fire in the questions and I've had to edit them very heavily. Concerning. Yeah, concerning. Particularly when the first one is from a Mr. C. Denyer. I think he might be related. He might be your father. He says... How important is Loctite as part of race preparation? <laughs> I feel there's a story here. Yes, there is a story. We laugh about this all the time. Um, whenever I, he goes to do a job and not do it properly, I remind him of the importance of using Loctite because he was my mechanic at a national karting title once. It was wet. It was the final. I went from the back of the field and I'd work my way through to third and only halfway through the race. I thought, this is looking good. It was wet. I was always quick in the wet. And I was on the podium. I was hunting down a win. And then my chain sprocket spun off. And I came, came to rest on the side of the field, walked back. I said, Dad, my sprocket came off. And he goes, yes, oh, yeah. He goes, I forgot to put Loctite. Uh, to secure the sprocket on. So the bolts have come undone. He goes, oh. I said, what'd you do that for? He goes, oh, I, was, I couldn't be bothered. I was over the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so to this day, it was like the national championship title that got away from us because of luck tight. Damn you. <laughs> Bloody hell. No, we laugh about it now, but we were absolutely gutted and soul destroyed. You know, it was the biggest karting event of the year and I was ready to make my mark. And then, Nah. Andy Raymond was a fantastic guest to have on the V8 Sleuth podcast during the course of 2020. And one of our Couch Racer questions asked him about the stories he's heard about his dad, Mike, since his passing in November 2019. One of the things that happens when we lose people who are close to us, you find out stories that you didn't know beforehand. Mm. And it's lovely to hear there was so much... Um, I know at Sandown when the news broke where we were uh, there last year because it was the, the 500 had been moved to after Bathurst, yep. which was something a little bit strange. Um, and, and Neil and I were doing a talk night at the, uh, at the cinema in Chadston. We booked out a cinema and we went into the night knowing the news and what had happened and it was going to come out the following day. And a fan in the middle of the night asked a question. And we, ha- we couldn't answer the question about your dad or Neil answered it yeah. um, without filling in the 100 people in the room. So they learnt the news there and it, and mm. it said a lot about uh, what he meant to so many people. But I think one of the great things is that there were so many beautiful stories and great things told. What, what were some of the picks that you, you heard from over the last 12 months of things that you didn't know or things that further reinforced, uh, reinforced I should say, what you knew and, and what, you, what you loved about your old man? Um. Mate, a lot of it comes back to, you know, the, the, the character of the man. Um, his honesty and his integrity. He, he lived a really simple life, 
to very simple values. And that was about being loyal, about being honest, uh, about being a, a professional. Um, but he was an even better husband and dad than anything he ever achieved on camera. Um, I've heard most of the stories along the way. Uh, Dad's friends, some great storytellers, the the Phil Harrisons, the Peter McKays, the Phil Christiansons, the Alan Horsleys, the list goes on and on. Great storytellers and always willing to tell me a story about Dad in the younger days. Uh, But most of the things that I've heard over the last 12 months have gone back to sort of reiterate what type of bloke I thought he was. And that's been really nice that others have shared those type of emotions and those types of sentiments with not only me, but with mum who's doing it tough and the, and the rest of the family. Uh, it's been really nice to hear what people thought, but how they thought of him. Mm. Absolutely. There are guys, whether it's the Alan Grices, the Tony Longhursts, Glenn Seaton, one in particular with a famous nickname, those nicknames that he penned for some of those guys, they will never shake those tags for years to come. He's got them. He's got them good. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the poor buggers, if they, uh, if they didn't like the nickname to start with, I apologise on behalf of the entire Raymond, Raymond family <laughs> because you've been stuck with it. <laughs> The Motofocus Top 10 Shootout is one of our best segments. I reckon it puts people on the spot. Sometimes they come up with some very unexpected answers in what is basically a very fancy form of word association. Now, we've analysed very closely all of our shootouts from this year, the answers, the questions, the banter, where they led to as well, and we've decided that the best of the season was one of the early ones from the year. Larry Perkins, the six-time Bathurst 1000 winner, tackled the Motofocus Top 10 shootout. We covered a broad spectrum of his career, and he produced a couple of very nice stories as well. We're going to finish off with a Top 10 shootout. This is the V8 Salute Top 10 shootout. Uh, so basically, it's a fancy form of word association. Oh, my God. So the first word that comes into your head with a list of 10 people, places, things. Some of them we've t- touched on, some of them we haven't. Okay, I'll let you have two or three words, but by the end you'll get down to one. That's what everybody seems to do. Le Mans. What's the word that springs to mind when I say Le Mans? Oh, sorry, Le Mans. Yeah, Le Mans. Um, um, And don't say French. That's cheating. Unbelievable high speed. Hyphenated, that's one word, I reckon. 400 Ks in a jag on slicks in the wet. Probably the silliest thing you've no ever done. No chicanes then. No. I drove the last year before they put chicanes in. All my Le Mans have been without a chicane. Real Le Mans. Yeah, the real Le Mans. <laughs> <laughs> no, and you never went back after that jag. I think that was probably enough for you to... Well, that was my third uh, trip there. And, well, everyone uh, forgets your first one, though. I don't think you've ever talked about it. You, everyone knows the one you did with Brock. Uh, uh, everyone knows the Jag. Uh, but the first one was in the mid-70s in a Porsche that 70, no one really ever talks about. Uh, they called it an IMSA Porsche. It was, um, it was a whatever it was. It was a class car. It wasn't an outright car, mm. and we come second in our class there. Yeah. yeah, everyone forgets that, that you did uh, three Le Mans, not two. <laughs> uh, next one on the top ten shootout list, Denny Holm. Denny Holm. Oh, I'm going to say more than two words. Yeah, Denny fair Holm. call. Fair call. 
uh, Denny Holm, one of the most fantastic blokes I've ever met, and uh, world champion in Formula One. I met him, I'm scratching around in the Monaco paddock in 1973, where I've just been fastest in practice, you know. Uh, and uh, um, this bloke walks up, you know, a mile from the Formula One pit. He's walked up to the Formula Three pit, and it was Denny Holm. And he walked up. He said, oh, "I'm just looking for you. I wanted to introduce myself." And he said, "Hey, if I can ever help you, whatever, I'm here to help you." Yeah. And this was from a guy who was only a couple of years earlier was Formula One world champion. Mm. He was still running in the '73 Formula One race at Monaco. I hope I've got that right. I'm sure I have. And he saw fit to um, come up and introduce himself to, uh, uh, yeah, Aussies and uh, Kiwis are the same. Once you're overseas, we consider everyone can, yeah, you're the same. And he just wanted to uh, extend a hand, and uh, it was just fantastic a moment I've never forgotten. And uh, and then I went on to have a great relationship with him here in Australia and in, in touring cars, and uh, truly a wonderful bloke. Mm. The bear, as they called him. Yeah. Uh, we talked about him before, Greg Hansford. It's hard to summar up, summarise all these people up or things in one word, but... Oh, a great loss. Mm. Yeah. Great loss. Uh, uh, a great loss because the guy who um, had no ego and he's only... Uh, all he just... His... He, he demonstrated what he was good at on the track, whether it was on bikes or... Uh, or in the cars, and never, never, never said a bad word about anyone. Just you, just tell me what you want me to do, and I'll do it. Mm. And uh, yeah, re- re- tremendous bloke, and a, and a, and a ter- you know, great loss. Mm. The polarizer. God, <laughs> there you go. There's your word. <laughs> God, give me strength. <laughs> it's more than one word. Uh, Bernie Eccleston. A doer. A doer. He, yeah, made, he made it happen. True. Then he true. made things happen. Uh, what's next on my list? Russell Ingle. Ah, uh, Russell Ingle. <laughs> um, one for me. <laughs> one for you, one for me. Yeah, right. <laughs> King of Contra, uh, Wheeler and Dealer. Uh, one for you, one for me. Sounds good. Uh, John Harvey, former HDT teammate of yours from back in the day. Um, he's a decent bloke. Hmm. Uh, nothing was a fuss for him, you know. Uh, a bit, a bit like uh, personnel, a bit like Greg Hansford, you know, not unassuming. You just, what do you want me to do? Fuss free. That's a, probably fuss-free. Yeah, fuss-free, yeah. yeah. No, no stress. Here's a good one for you. Tom Walkinshaw. Oh, Tom's a difficult one. Um, what can I say about Tom Walkinshaw? Well, well, yeah, you only need to find one word. I you only know, need to find Christ. one word. Um, I can't, I'm struggling to think of a single word for Tom. Um, or maybe more than a couple. Yeah, Go with a couple of words. Uh, make it easier. He was certainly a rule exploiter. <laughs> there we go. We got there eventually. Cow <laughs> uh, Angie. What's the word that springs to mind? <laughs> I'll, I'll relax the one word rule for yeah, you. Yeah, Cow Angie. My old hometown. Hmm. <laughs> Straightforward and simple as that. 
Uh, and one more to finish off with. I reckon he had a few run-ins with this bloke over the years, but some damn good races too. Uh, Mark Scaife. Yes, I had some good races with Mark. Oh, I'm, I'm on the one word. On the I? one word, yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, worthy opposition. You always knew you were in a fight when you are up against oh, yeah, him. Yeah, worthy opposition, that'll do. Yep. That was probably the hardest top ten shootout you've ever done in your whole <laughs> career, actually, but we got there in the end. And that's our take on 2020, the best of the year of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timkin. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at some of the best bits from the season from our podcast in its second year. Don't worry, we're not stopping yet. We've got another podcast next week and we're going to go right through the holidays and the summer months. Next week, our final one of 2020, I'm in the hot seat as our episode about V8 Sleuth takes a closer look at the origins of V8 Sleuth how it came to be, and much, much more relating to the brand and the work that goes on behind the scenes. On behalf of the whole team, I'm Aaron Noonan. Thanks for listening again to the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Timken. We'll chat soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.